I know what y'all thinking. Y'all thinking several things. Why they do that to that man? <laughs> I'm thinking it's Easter. Why are we talking about body fluids? What's this got to do with the resurrection? Well, we're going to see in a moment. Before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you have allowed us to have it in our own language, to be able to read it anytime we want, without persecution, without fear. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us grace to be able to read it at length. Forgive us, Lord, when our flesh gets tired and we get bored with your word. Forgive us, Lord, when at the slightest bit of difficulty in understanding, we give up. Help us by your spirit to press into your word so that we might know you better, understand ourselves better, and be the holy people that you have called us to be. Help us in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, if you need a Bible this morning, raise your hands, and uh, one of the ushers will bring you one. Uh, Sister, right up front here. And we are going to be thinking about the the four chapters uh, that our brother just read for us in Leviticus chapters 12 through 15. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been in a series through the book of Leviticus uh, that we have called Holy Unto the Lord, because that's the main theme of Leviticus, that God's people should be holy just as he is holy. And I looked at these four chapters and they, they hang together uh, as a unit because they're all from chapter 11 to chapter 15 are dealing with this question of clean and unclean. Back in chapter 10, verse 10, uh, God spoke to the priests and told the priests that they were to be sober-minded when they ministered to him because part of their job would be not only to teach the people God's word, but to judge between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. And so in chapters 11 to 15, he unpacks uh, what precisely clean and unclean is in chapter 11 as it applies to animals and their diets what was clean and what was unclean. And in chapters 12 to 15, he unpacks it not in terms of what they eat, but in terms of who they are, their own bodies, what's clean and unclean as it relates to their bodies. This is how these these chapters hold together. And at the end of chapter 15, he tells us very clearly why this is important. That the priests do this job and the people understand this well. So if you're looking at Leviticus, look at Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31. It's kind of the purpose statement for this section. And there God's word says this. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness, uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. God says, listen, my tabernacle, my dwelling place, my home is in the midst of my people. And I, your God, am holy, absolutely holy, utterly holy. And nothing unclean can be in my presence and live. And so this matter of judging between clean and unclean was really a matter of life and death when it came to living with a holy God. And so we've got these four chapters here that for us in our day can seem a little weird, can seem a a real old-fashioned or arcane, but for the Israelite, this was critical for living with God. This was critical for living with God safely. Now, last week we talked about the concepts of clean and unclean, uh, and I want to review that real quickly as we get into our our sermon this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to ask and answer three questions from these four chapters. Number one, what does clean and unclean mean? What does clean and unclean mean? Number two, what makes a person unclean in God's eyes? What makes a person unclean in God's eyes? And number three, how can anyone approach a holy God without dying? How can anyone approach this holy God 
without dying. So that first question, what, what, what does the Bible mean when it talks about clean and unclean? Again, these are terms that we can use, and often we can use them almost as synonyms, clean as a synonym for holy, and unclean as a synonym for sinful. But that's not quite right. They are related, but they're not synonyms. They're not overlapping terms. As you'll see as we go through this chapter, the concept of, of clean and unclean may or may not have to do with sin or moral living. So the animals themselves that we looked at in chapter 11, they're neither in and of themselves clean or unclean. They're part of God's creation. And, and you and I, in and of ourselves, are not clean or unclean necessarily, but there are things here that can make us unclean. So we saw this chart. People can be in one of three categories. They could either be holy or common or unclean. All of us and all of God's creation is common. It is, it is good the way God has made the creation. We're neither clean or, or we're neither unclean nor holy. But there are things that can make us take us from sort of common over to unclean. Things that defile us. Could be sin, could be weakness, could be disease. And most of what we're looking at in verses 12 to 15 are the ways in which diseases make us unclean or made Israel unclean before a holy God. Now, we don't want to stay unclean, and so God gives instructions here uh, for the cleansing of the unclean, for the purifying of the unclean. Uh, sometimes it has to do, as we'll see, with quarantine and things of that sort. Other times there are offerings. And so God is laying down in the word here a way for those who have become unclean in some way to come back to clean and to come back to him. And then clean things could be set apart as holy as dedicated entirely to God. In fact, that's what holy means. It means to be set apart to God. And that, that happens by way, again, of, of dedication or consecration. We take these things, we pray for them, we say this belongs to God. It can be used for nothing else except God and his purposes. And likewise, holy things can be defiled. There can be sin or other kinds of uncleannesses that defile a holy thing to bring it back to common or even unclean. Now, this is basic to Israel's worldview. This is basic to how they are to live their lives. I mean, it, it applies to everything from the animals they come into contact with and what they can eat. And as we shall see here, uh, it applies even to how they think about their own bodies and think about sickness as they encounter sickness. So clean and unclean, very simple. Uh, a clean thing is a common thing that is not defiled. And an unclean thing is a common thing or something in creation that has been defiled by sin or weakness or disease or something of that sort. And what we have in the Old Testament law, again, is a way of symbolically, ceremonially, taking unclean things and common things and symbolically cleansing them and making them holy for God. The main sort of burden of this text, again, is we need to do that with our bodies not just with what we eat. We need to understand our own persons in terms of clean and unclean, common and holy. Israel was called to be holy because God is holy. We too, his church, are called to be holy because our same God is holy. Which brings us to the question then, what makes a person unclean? Well, in these chapters, chapters 12 to 15, there are sort of four situations of human experience, of human life, that can result in a person, in terms of worship before God, being ceremonially unclean. Again, that doesn't mean that they're sinful, doesn't mean that they've done some moral wrong, but it does mean that there's a weakness or a corruption that isn't proper in God's presence. And this is what he's addressing here. So the first thing that he addresses, there are four situations. The first he addresses in chapter 12 is childbirth. Verses 1 to 8 focus on whether or not it's the birth of a male child or a female child. And in both cases, there is prescribed a time of, uh, of an unclean period. And then there, there's, in the case of males, a, a circumcision on the eighth day. And then there's a period of purification. Now, the thing that jumps out at people pretty quickly is, the female, if it's a baby girl, her period uh, of, of uncleanness is twice the, as long as that of a, a, a male son. And the question is, why? God hating on little girls. 
Well, no, children are a heritage from the Lord, right? Be fruitful and multiply is the command he gives his creation right, right there with Adam and Eve. So why is the period of uncleanness for girl babies twice the length of boy babies? I don't know. We don't know. It's not in the Bible. It doesn't tell us. The best we can do is speculate, but it's safe to speculate with God's word. Maybe, after I say don't speculate, maybe, maybe, and this is the best I can see. I, I've looked at all of the commentaries I've got and, and checked it, and seriously, nobody does. Like, I don't know. Maybe it is the fact that the girl, like the mother, at some point future, will have a cycle and give birth. And the, the sort of conception of blood that's in that blood is sacred in the book of Leviticus. Um, the, the sort of blood that's associated with childbirth, et cetera. Maybe he's thinking about both the mother and the daughter. I, I, I don't know. Don't let it trouble you. And the reason we shouldn't trouble us is because look at Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Right there in Leviticus 12, 6 to 8, uh, when it comes to being clean after the childbirth, Notice that the same sacrifice, the exact same sacrifice is given for a male child and a girl child. That, that when it comes to coming to the Lord and being with the Lord and being clean before the Lord, there's no difference between male and female. You see that um, the days of purifying must be completed in verse 6. Then the same sacrifice is offered for boys and girls uh, at the second part of verse 6. The parents bring that sacrifice to the tent of meeting, the, the place where God's glory dwells. And the ordinary sacrifice would be a, a, a one-year-old lamb without spot or blemish and either a, a turtle dove or a pigeon. You see that in verse 7. And the priest would sacrifice those animals and offer them to make atonement for the mother. Now, verse 8, interestingly, and we've seen this before, includes instructions for persons who could not afford to offer a lamb. In that case, they were to bring two birds. And one bird would be used for the burnt offering and the other bird for the, the sin offering. And the, the burnt offering, as you recall, um, symbolized reconciliation with God, the removal of offense of sin. And the sin offering or the pollution offering represented the, the removal of the pollution of sin. And these are poor parents. Poor parents were meant to have as much access to God and fellowship with God as middle class parents or wealthy parents. God is no respecter of persons. How much money you got in your bank account ain't got nothing to do with whether or not God is pleased with you or whether or not you are acceptable to God. God never leaves out the poor. And more of our theology needs to reflect this kind of understanding of who God is. So in the case of childbirth, there is uncleanness because of the the blood and the placenta and all the things that go along with that. Here's a second circumstance that may lead to uncleanness, and most of this section is given over to these, this topic, and that is the topic of leprosy or skin disease. When the Bible talks about leprosy, it, it really is a word that it uses for a whole range of skin diseases, and uh, you'll see several of them mentioned throughout this chapter, chapter 13. So in verses 1 to 8, you get skin eruptions. Um, verses 9 to 17, there's um, swelling and hair turning white and raw flesh. Verses 18 to 23 is boils. Verses 24 to 28, you get burns that, that create raw flesh too. Then there is in verses 29 to 37, um, disease on the head or the beard, the sores that come up. Verses 38 and 39, what the Bible calls leucoderma, white spots on the skin. And verses 40 to 44, baldness. All you brothers with shiny foreheads and hairs, notice the text says it's clean. It's all right. At least since Jordan, it's been clean. You know what I mean? So what's to happen in these cases of skin diseases? Well, what really is being given to us in chapters 13 and 14 are the steps that are meant to be taken uh, if to, to sort of examine whether or not you have this disease, uh, whether or not it's leprous, and then to sort of respond to it based upon whether or not it's leprous or not. So notice in all these situations, the examination begins with going to show yourself to the priest. Now about this time in my sermon preparation, it dawned on me that the priests in Old Testament Israel had a much harder job than the pastor today. 
Not that pastoring is easy, because it's not. But if you notice, by the time we're finished with this section, the priest has not only responsibility for sacrificing animals and teaching God's word. Chapter 12, he's got to be an OBGYN. Chapter 13, he's got to be a dermatologist. Chapter 14, he's got to be a home inspector. Chapter 15, he's got to practice hematology. I mean, this, this dude had to do everything. And so the first step was to bring yourself to the priest and say, look at this. Tell me what this is. And then the the next step was for the priest to sort of decide whether or not it was a leprous disease. If it was not a leprous disease, then he would pronounce you clean and you were good to go on with your life and to go on to worship with God. If it was a leprous disease, then he had to sort of go through the steps of treatment. Now, look at verses 45 and 46, or yeah, let's look at 45 to 46, chapter 13. It says that the leprous person who has a disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now that's kind of the result of the priest looking at a person seeing if the disease is beneath the skin, if it creates discoloring or rawness, or if it changes the color of the hair, and if it seems to be spreading. If if those things are true, the priest is like, yo, this is leprosy. And basically what we need to do is quarantine this person. We need to take him away from the rest of the camp for seven days, see what happens after seven days. If it's still there, it's still spreading. Maybe there's another seven-day period. But in any case, the person is unclean. And more than that, now, this person actually has to now, in society, present himself as unclean. That's what the torn clothes is about. The the hair hanging down in, in sort of ragged fashion. Think about the social consequence of walking around all day with your hand over your mouth saying, I'm unclean, unclean. And then not even being able to live in your own home, but having to live outside the camp by yourself. This is a massively isolating experience. It takes you out of the rhythm of everything human, of community, of touch, of of love and togetherness. It, It is to feel yourself abandoned, cut off. It's a terrible experience. Now, what should happen then? Well, the priest, after they make that examination, and then after they begin this treatment, it's the priest who also has to determine whether or not the person is clean again, right? Now, if they're clean, again, they have to show themselves to the priest again. The priest would go outside the camp, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 14, would go outside the camp where the person was and and examine them. And if it was healed, the priest would then make an offering for the person. He would sacrifice one of two birds. He'd kill the bird. Bird's blood would be mixed in a bowl with water and some other things. And he'd take the, the blood in that water and he would sprinkle it on the person seven times. The other bird would be released into the open field. Um, and he would pronounce that person clean. But now that person still wasn't done. They would come back into the city. they come back into the camp. But for seven days, they had to sleep outside their tent. They still couldn't go back to sort of normal routine because we're still waiting to see, is this thing coming back or not? And so they have to sleep outside their tent, verse 8, for seven days. And that would keep them from the household. On the seventh day, they'd wash their clothes they shave off all of their body hair, the, the head, the eyebrows, the mustache, the beard, whatever. They shave, shave off all of their hair. Uh, and on that day, they would make an offering to God. On the eighth day, they make an offering to God. Again, an offering uh, at the tent of meeting in verses 10 to 13. And the priest would sprinkle blood on his right ear, on his right thumb, and on his right foot. We saw it before, you remember, when they consecrated, consecrated the priest. It was symbolic of being entirely owned by God, of being dedicated to God. The priest would anoint the person with oil, verses 15 to 18, and make atonement for the person, and the person would be clean. That was kind of the, the treatment that had to be done in the case of various forms of leprosy. 
Well, the third situation that will make someone unclean is um, disease possessions. Disease possessions. So it wasn't enough that maybe you had some body ailment, but, but God in his infinite wisdom knew that some diseases would be passed along, not necessarily through a person, but through contact with other things like clothing and like the house. That's what's discussed in these two, in, in, in chapter 13 and chapter 14. Chapter 13, verses 47 to 59, focuses on diseased clothing. If there appeared to be some leprosy in your clothing, then your clothing had to be treated too. Kind of two steps of quarantine. You go to verses 47 and 49, show yourself to the priest. He would quarantine you, verse 50, for seven days. Verse 51, if it spread, then you were unclean. Verse 52, if the clothing spread and the clothing was unclean, then it had to be burned. Now, if, you, if there was no spread, you still went into a second seven-day period of quarantine. You had to wash your clothing, verses 53 and 54, quarantine another seven days. If the area faded out, then you would tear that out of the garment, and then you'd move on. But if it appeared again, then you would burn the garment. If it vanished completely, then you were, un you were clean, excuse me, verses 58 uh, and 59. A similar process is used for people who have a diseased home. That's what we see in chapter 14, verses 33 to 57. Uh, it's odd language to our ears, but someone may come to the priest and say, hey, I think my house has leprosy. Seems to be some growth in my house. Maybe this is a kind of mold or something is what we think of in our day. Our homes may have mold and need inspection. And again, this was the priest's job. He would come to the house, verses 33 and 35. He'd take a look at the infected area and have to make some decision as to whether or not it was just on the wall or whether it was in sort of beneath the surface of the wall. And again, you get two or three phases. Phase one, the priest would empty the house for inspection. They would inspect the disease area. If it was greenish or reddish and deeper than the surface, they would quarantine the house for seven days. And if it spread in that seven days, they would then sort of tear out the diseased stones out of the house and tear out the plaster in that area. They take those stones and that plaster outside the camp where all unclean things were supposed to be. And then they would put in new stones and new plaster. They would quarantine it, come back another seven days. If it's not spread, then it's clean. If you come back in seven days and it spreads some more, they tear the whole house down. Take all of the stone, all of the plaster, all of the building materials outside the camp where everything unclean is. If you went into that house, you were considered unclean until evening. If you ate in that house, you were considered unclean until evening. And you had to wash your clothes uh, as a part of the sort of purification process. So your possessions, if they were defiled, could make you unclean, whether clothing of any sort, wool, leather, um, silk, whatever it was, or whether it was your home. And finally, here's the last circumstance that would make a person unclean. It's in chapter 15, the, the bodily discharges. Verses 1 to 18 talk about the bodily discharges of men. Verses 19 to 30 talk about the bodily discharges of, of women. For men, verse 3, it'd be any discharge, whether it was running or blocking. So whether you had a runny nose or a clogged nose, right? Whether you are uh, got allergies and allergic reactions that, that cause you to sort of have some kind of running fluid or whether or not you, you're getting stuffed up. In either case, that blockage or that running fluid would be something that would made you unclean. Or verses 16 to 18, whether it was, it was semen, a discharge of semen in the course of intercourse with male and female. Women, verses 19 and 24, he addresses the issue of the regular monthly cycle. That a woman who was on her cycle was unclean for seven days. Uh, or, verses 25 or 30, if there's some irregular bleeding, some ongoing bleeding beyond the cycle, that too would have made a woman unclean. Now, this would make us uncomfortable, all this talk of bodily fluids in church. But this is God's word. And it's an indication of how closely God cares for us. How closely he pays attention to us. How, how familiar he is with, with our bodies, the bodies that he's made. 
uh, and how our bodies in some ways are, are, are signs, are, are, are parables to us about our very relationship with God, that what we do with our bodies matter. What we do with our bodies matter in terms of whether or not we are clean and unclean. So in this section, you'll notice the number of things that he says that if this is true of a male or true of a female, there are a number of things that then should not be done. Don't touch their bed. Verse 5, verse 20. Don't sit where they sat. Verse 6, verse 22. Don't, if someone's unclean, they've got a, an issue, of, a bodily issue, don't, don't touch their body. Um, if, they, if they spit on you, I assume accidentally, then, then you're unclean. Verse 8. If you touch anything that was under them, verses 9 and 10, or if you carry anything that they touch, verse 10. Do you use their dishes, verse 12? See, if a person was made unclean by this kind of contact, they were to wash their clothes and to bathe and consider themselves unclean until the evening. And the person with the discharge had to count seven days. That was the case for a man with his discharge and a woman on her cycle. For those seven days, they were unclean. And after the seven days, they, they again, had to wash their clothes and bathe in water. That was part of the ritual for becoming clean. And on the eighth day, make a sacrifice to God. Now, that's a lot we could say about these four chapters. But let me, let me sort of offer about four or five thoughts here in terms of why does God require this? What's God up to? Seems so weird to us. Four or five things, real quickly, very briefly, in terms of, I think, the intention of God in requiring all of this. Number one, God was establishing standards of hygiene among his people. God cared about their hygiene. He cared about their health. He cared that they washed their hands. Some people need to hear that today. He cares. So wash your hands. We're establishing a standard for hygiene. Number two, God was preventing the spread of disease. He was preventing the spread of disease. Uh, truly, God is the great physician. And he, and he cares about his patients, not just after they're sick, but he's practicing here preventative medicine. Right? He's teaching them how to be healthy as a community. Number three, God was teaching them that there's a connection, as we said before, uh, between what goes on with their bodies and their holiness. Holiness was not only a spiritual thing. It was not a spiritual thing disconnected from the physical embodied life. The two are connected. And Israel needed to be aware of that. Number four, God was constantly reminding them of their call to be holy as he is holy. He was giving them daily reminders in everyday life that they were to be like him. That, that how they handled a cold was a parable for whether or not they were clean or unclean before him. That whether or not they entered a home that was diseased or were in a time of their purification, all of these things were daily reminders that there is a holy God in their midst and they are meant to be holy as he is holy. And number five, God was also teaching them the limits of the law and the priests for making them holy. He was teaching them the limits of the law and the limits of the priests for actually making them holy. To understand this, we, we need to sort of see two things. First, that the law could not produce the righteousness it required. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. All of these commandments which are holy and all of these instructions which are holy, which reveal the character of God, as holy as they are, they could not produce in Israel or in anyone that same holiness. They were, in the language of Romans 8, 3, weakened by the flesh. And in chapters 12 to 15, a pretty interesting picture, a depiction of what it means to be weakened by the flesh. All of these discharges and illnesses, etc. So they were meant to note that we're doing this every day. And as soon as I get healthy, my wife gets a cold. 
now the house is unclean again, and I had to go to the market, and, and I saw what's the name sneeze and then butcher an animal, not wash his hands. Now all that's unclean. I mean, you just bump into uncleanness all the time. And it's meant to be, it's meant to teach that, no, not by the law will you be actually clean before God. Here's the second thing. The priest is doing all this work. I mean, again, he's, he's everything. He's OBGYN. He's, he's a dermatologist. He's a home inspector. He's over there doing all this work, declaring clean and unclean. But did you notice? Did you notice? He could only make the declaration clean and unclean. He could not make anyone clean. In all of these chapters, in all of these, all of these sort of laws, in every situation, all the priest could do was say what he saw. I examined the sore, that's unclean. I came back seven days later, it looks like you're clean. But he was not the one producing or curing, he was not the one producing cleanness or curing the uncleanness. It was merely a diagnostician who could not cure. Which makes really our third question so important. Well, how can anyone then approach a holy God and live? If, according to chapter 15, verse 31, to be unclean in God's presence results in death, and if, as we have seen through chapters, chapters 12 to 14, our own bodies conspire against us in producing ceremonial uncleanness, how are we going to go to God and live? How are we going to be reconciled to this holy God? Well, it's in this way that these laws, which seem so outdated to us, actually point us to Jesus. The circumstances that the law addresses point to Christ. It's into these circumstances that, that Jesus comes. And Jesus does for our cleanness what the law and the priests could never do. Let me give you three let me give you three circumstances from the Gospels where we see this related to chapters 12 to 15. You can follow along with me if you want. The first is in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. This is a part of the birth narrative telling us about Jesus' birth. Uh, it's telling us about when Jesus was eight days old, his parents take him to the temple to dedicate him. This is what we read, Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. So Luke is thinking about Leviticus 12, isn't he? They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, this is what I find so fascinating. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We just read that in Leviticus 12, didn't we? That was the offering given by who in Israel? The poor. What are we learning about Jesus' birth circumstance? It's poor. It's born to poor parents. Now, what, we, what I love about this, too, is that what we're finding out is that with Jesus' earthly family, with Mary and Joseph, they practiced the law right from Jesus' birth. So even before Jesus could act independently, he was obeying God's law through the obedience of his parents. And, and, and though his family was poor, that did not mean they were insignificant. They made the offering for those who could not afford the offering of a ram. And again, we need to meditate on the theological significance of God using poor people to accomplish the salvation of the world. In the Old Testament, in places like Leviticus 12, God makes an allowance so the poor can come to him. In the New Testament, God comes into the world poor to meet us and to redeem us in his Son. Maybe our culture despising of poverty is an affront to a God who himself would become poor for our redemption.
Maybe, maybe the path of sanctification is a path that travels through poverty rather than riches. But what does Jesus say later in the Gospels? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't mean poverty is easy. Doesn't mean we all should take a vow of poverty. God blesses, right? But it does mean that if we are in our hearts in some way disdaining people who lack resources and lack means, whom we would call poor, or if we are in some way dismayed because we are poor, we haven't yet grasped that God identifies himself with the poor and uses the poor in the most significant event in creation, the incarnation of his son. And salvation comes from a poor savior. And here, Jesus, in taking on our poverty, is identifying with our weakness even at his birth. This is the savior that we have. This is what makes him a great high priest, that he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Whether that weakness is poverty or that weakness is flesh or that weakness is temptation. This is what makes him a great high priest. And this is why Leviticus 12 is pointing away from itself as a cure to the coming of the son as the cure. Let me give you another passage from the gospel. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And we could almost pick any scene in the gospel, and, and Leviticus is sort of the, the, the backdrop for it. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This is Jesus now engaging a leper. Remember what chapters 13 and 14 taught about leprosy. It says, when he came down from the mountain, Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, now what should he have been saying according to the law? Unclean, unclean. And where should he have been according to the law? And who should he have been with? As right, should have been all by himself, outside the city, outside the camp, with no social contact. But here he is coming to Jesus. And, and what should have been the consequence of him touching anybody? They become unclean. So everybody sees this leper. How is he dressed? Torn clothes, hair down, hanging loose on his head, looking, looking like he got leprosy in that way. And, and he comes to this leper, uh, to Jesus, and he kneels down before him. And you can almost hear the crowd going, <gasps> pulling back, thinking this man is unclean. And see what he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof. Now, you have already said it. You understand the backdrop. Under the law, anyone who touches a leper is supposed to themselves become unclean. They are supposed to them, themselves not be able to appear before God. The priest had no ability to cure, only to diagnose. The priest would say, if someone was healed or not, but could not produce the healing. But the leper knows. The leper knows. He needs another way to be clean before God than these priests and these sacrifices. The leper understands that Jesus is a greater priest than the priests of Israel. He says in verse 2, if you will, you can make me clean. Not call me clean. You can make me clean. And Jesus, defying all the expectation of that culture, does the most humanizing thing. Touches him. Touches him. And with that touch and the will of Jesus, that leper is instantly clean. Instantly clean. No quarantine. No wash clothes immediately healed by Jesus's touch. See, Jesus has the power to produce what the law cannot. 
to make the unclean clean in an instant. And it doesn't matter if it's the physical uncleanness of leprosy or the moral uncleanness of sin, to be touched by the Lord will make you clean. This is who Jesus is. That's one more scene we got to look at, then we're going to be done. One more scene. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. This is the story of a bleeding woman and a dying girl. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. And I love how the gospel shows everybody kneeling before Jesus, lepers and rulers kneeling before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. That's faith. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Verse 20, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turning and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose and reported this went through all that district. Remember what we read in Leviticus 12 and 15 as the backdrop for what we see here in Matthew chapter 9. And let me ask you these questions again. How long had the woman had the issue of blood? So how long was she unclean? How long was she unable to be touched? How long was she unable to touch someone without making them unclean? How long was she unable to meet with God? What was supposed to happen to Jesus when she touched his robe? He and the garment were supposed to become unclean. But what does this woman expect to happen? Expects to be healed. And what happens? Well, she touched his garment. Indeed, she was instantly healed. Jesus is the embodiment of pure holiness. With ceremonial holiness, a, a thing is kind of holy by ritual. But anything that's not holy instantly defiles it because it's only ceremonially holy. But with pure holiness, real holiness, with Jesus, anything that touches it, Jesus doesn't take on that character. Anything that touches it takes on Jesus' character. Anything unclean and unholy that, that the Lord touches in his grace takes on the cleanness and the holiness and the righteousness that Jesus has. This is why, even though we still have colds and flus and other kinds of bodily ailments that would have ceremoniously made us unclean, when we come to faith in Jesus, always and forever, we are clean. This is why, even though we are sinners, sinners, we are by faith at the same time justified. We are by faith at the same time righteous. It's because of the holiness of the Lord, which has changed us in God's sight. We are all like this bleeding woman. In our sin, we are all like this bleeding woman. Years running apart from God, outside the camp, outside the city. Years unclean. And then we meet Jesus, the Son of God, who took upon himself our flesh, who lived a perfect life without sin, and then shed his blood for our redemption on Calvary's cross. And three days later, as we celebrate the day, was raised from the grave. 
was raised in glory, was raised in victory, was raised in purity. So that everyone who has Jesus has his purity, has his righteousness, has his cleanliness, has his holiness, has his life. Eternal life. Never to die again. And beloved, this was, this was breaking into the world right here in Matthew chapter 9. That little girl died. But next to a God who defeats death, <laughs> it was just the afternoon nap. Jesus puts the crowd out because the crowd don't believe. And there's a lesson in that. Don't be running with the crowds. Don't let the crowds, don't let the crowds determine your understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus puts the crowd out, goes inside the house, calls that girl to rise and in obedience to his sovereign command. Even death had to step aside so she could step up. She tasted in the resurrection. Just as we who by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have also already been raised from death to life through faith in him, never to die again. Oh, we're going to lay down this mortal body. We're we going to lay down this body with all of its corruption, with all of its disease. Hey, you wanted to know what chapters 12 to 15 have to do with the resurrection? It's this. When we get up with him on that great getting up morning, we are getting up with glorified bodies. We're getting up with bodies that won't bleed anymore. We're getting up with bodies that won't, that won't give off any kind of secretion, any kind of thing that defiles, because we will be in a moment transformed and glorified together with him. Oh, yeah, Leviticus chapter 12 to 15 teaches us, too, that we need a new body, not just a new priest. And we have that new body through this new priest who gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins, who was raised from the grave by his father to defeat death and defeat sin for us. And if he is yours, you have everything you need. You've got an OBGYN when you give birth. you got a dermatologist when you got a skin disease. you got a home inspector when your joint moldy. you got a hematologist when you got a blood problem. you got the resurrection and the life when death starts creeping around. He's our all. He's our everything. In this Jesus, every promise of God is yes and amen for those who believe. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is a wonderful day to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust him as your Lord and Savior, the one who died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to be punished eternally for them. And the one who was raised from the grave three days later so that you would live forever in God's love and in God's kingdom. Glorified together with him. He has loved you from before the worlds were born or created. And he will love you until the end. Love him back. Put your faith in him and follow him in the obedience that comes from faith. And the promise of God, which shall never fail, is that you will have eternal life. In that moment, you will be cleansed and you will live forever with him. If you'd like to know more, we're going to hang around a little bit after service. We're going to have the Lord's Supper where we celebrate this in, in kind of a, a drama of feeding upon the body of Christ by faith and drinking his blood by faith. These are acts of faith that symbolize that we are joined together with him. After we have the supper and after we dismiss and the choir sings, I think again, and the choir sings, we're going to hang around and, and share in what we have in Jesus. And if you'd like to know more about this, we'd like to tell you more. Just grab any one of us, anybody who looks like they know their way around a Bible. And you find out they're just carrying a Bible, find somebody else. We'd like to tell you the truth this morning. We'd like nothing more than to share with you the good news of Jesus Christ and have you believe it this morning. And Christian, just one word of application. Hope in Jesus and the power of the resurrection. Our Lord got up. 
you're going to get up too. Whatever it is we are facing, it does not have the last word. The resurrection does. The resurrection does. And whatever change we feel we need in our lives, whatever uncleanness we need to get rid of, whatever sickness or soreness or weakness we're experiencing, it's Jesus who with one touch heals. Oh, no, holiness and sanctification and growth and progress against our strongest enemies is not only possible but actual because of who Jesus is. And that same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, is at work in us as we believe. Beloved, believe on Jesus and let the power of the resurrection work in your life now and forever. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we give you praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you praise for Leviticus 12 through 15 and all of your word, which points to Jesus and shows us Jesus. And we give you praise that you have appointed us to live in the place and the time in which we live. Because you've appointed us to live in a place and a time where we could be brought near to your gospel. The news that Jesus has died for our sins and the better news that he was raised from the grave three days later. And the indescribable news that we, through faith in him, can live forever with him in his glory. Well, we pray this morning that somebody, by faith, would lay hold to that news, would believe, would be transformed, would become yours, and would follow you in genuine faith. We pray that someone this morning who is struggling would be strengthened by the power of your resurrection. And someone this morning who's doing well would rejoice even more that through your grace and through your power and glory, you have blessed them so. So whatever state we're in this morning, whatever our need this morning, we pray, meet with us, Lord Jesus. In your resurrected glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.